I think being naive was absolutely worked in my favor. I believe that everything could be done. It could be done in my timeline. And yeah, I've learned so much. If I was ever going to do something new, it might have to be in another industry that I know nothing about. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands. From developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am talking today with Shelby Taylor, who is the founder and CEO of Chicopee. So exciting because I love the brand and I also love to get to talk to women founders. So welcome to the podcast, Shelby. Thanks, Christy, for having me. It's exciting to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Do you want to um, start by just giving us a little bit of a background on Chicopee, and then we'll talk about how you decided that this was your path? Sure, sure. So Chicopee is currently a brand of organic pastas made from just chickpeas and lentils. So we offer our pasta across North America, and it's very high in protein. It's got 23 grams of protein per serving, 11 grams of fiber, and we offer it in several different shapes and forms. To talk a little bit about how it got started, it was actually back when I owned a little health food store in 2015. And the idea for it really came from listening to my customers and what they were looking for and what they were challenged with at home. Um, that's really where the idea came about from. Can you talk a little, so there's, a, I mean, a lot of people do that. They, and first of all, it's interesting that you had a health food store because you were exposed to the exact kind of consumers that you now market to. So mm-hmm. that was probably really helpful from a figuring out what the need was, but there are a lot of people that feel the way that you felt about the void in the market for, I assume for moms and families, what made you decide that you were going to actually launch a brand? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think even before I bought the store, you know, I kind of knew that I wanted to do something bigger and maybe launch a product. And then I became pregnant with my first child shortly after I was married. And it seemed like a crazy time to try to start something from scratch. And the health food store in my, the little town that I lived in came up for sale. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this is the right route to go. It'll give me a chance to talk to customers, but it's already established. It won't be quite so chaotic as starting something from scratch as the same time as I'm starting a family. And yes, that's what it was meant to be. And I did use it for market research, but it, the idea came very quickly thereafter. And also my desire to not be in the store six days a week, you know, when I had a little one at home. So it all sort of happened a lot faster than I had anticipated. Did you think when you decided to do it, that it was going to be less time consuming than being in the store six days a week or just, I'm sure. Yeah. I I think, I don't think there was a single thing about this that I wasn't completely naive about. That is amazing. First of all, it's amazing that you're saying it and just putting it out there. And I think it happens to so many people. So it's such a good thing to talk about. And in a lot of ways, I suspect it helps because if you knew all the things, there are many people that wouldn't do it. I say that all the time. You know, a lot of people say, you know, what's next after Chicopee or, you know, what are you going to do next one day? And I'm just, I have a hard time believing that I could ever start another food business because, and just know too much. I think being naive was absolutely worked in my favor. I believe that everything could be done. It could be done in my timeline. And 
you know, it just, I, I mean, I've learned, yeah, I've learned so much. If I was ever going to do something new, it might have to be in an, another industry that I know nothing about. That's funny, you know, but it's not true because you did it. And so you can do it again. I mean, that's how I always think about things when I get stressed or I'm like, I don't know if I could keep doing this. Then I have evidence. I already did it. I know I can do it. <laughs> but you're right. Knowing the things may be a deterrent. So talk about that then. Talk a little bit about starting a food company, a brand without really knowing anything about the food industry or how it worked from a, I'm sure there were manufacturing challenges and distribution Uh challenges. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I'd say that, you know, what little knowledge I had did come from owning the store. And I, and I didn't know anything before that, except that I was pretty passionate about nutrition, very passionate, actually. So I had left sort of my background is in journalism, and I was an editor at a home magazine. But my favorite article in that magazine was always like the one recipe that we printed, I just was really, I just love food, and I love nutrition. So that's how I ended up going into that space. And I learned, I think, some valuable lessons from the retailer side and the challenges that you have as a retailer that not all entrepreneurs going into the space can understand. So, you know, that was sort of built into our model right away is to understand the challenges that the retailer has and what they're looking for and what matters to them. And I also had made some connections with distributors that way. So that's how I landed my very first distributor was I picked the distributor that I enjoyed working with the most and basically harassed them into carrying my product. And they were so kind. It was the Neil brothers here in Canada and they were so kind, but now, you know, we're one of their bigger brands and, and they're one of our, our absolute best customers. So that was a little bit that I did know. I did not know anything about food production or manufacturing or regulations. I actually also didn't know anything about running a corporation. I had like a little sole proprietorship, you know, and setting up a corporation with investors. And I mean, that's a whole other thing, but with manufacturing, I guess my real skill was research and that come from my curiosity and my journalism background. And I have no fear of asking all the questions to every person that will listen. I think that's a lot of why it succeeded. I, you know, my first connection and sorry, probably babbling on a little bit here. No, no, that's really good. I want to talk more about that. Great. So my first real connection that helped connect me with investors and also got me to think about the business as much bigger than just like, you know, what I was originally thinking of it being kind of small and local and, and growing it slowly. I met him on this panel. So I pitched to this group at the local college. It was just a pitch event for advice, nothing Mm -hmm. more. And so I just had this idea. I had nothing put together on it. I made the PowerPoint the night before my husband, who will always kick himself now, but he was like, why are you doing this? Like, you don't even have anything down on paper. And I was like, well, I have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. So I went there. I somehow won best pitch. Um, And the connection on the panel, he was the founder of the local angel investor network. So he was able, he took a real interest in me and the business and and taught me a great deal and connected me with some people who really helped me to get started. That's fantastic. I want to talk about the asking questions to anyone who will listen, because I feel like when people start companies, 
a lot of people, and I'm one of them, at the beginning, you don't want to ask too many questions that might make it seem like you don't know what you're talking about or what you're doing. And so you don't ask the questions. And when the truth is, people love to help and love to give advice. And I just wonder how you got yourself. Did you ever feel that way and you just didn't care or you just never really felt that way? That's a good question. I I wonder because I was never worried about sounding dumb, like I didn't know anything because the truth was I didn't know anything. Yeah. And I think I, you know, learned through my journalism background and the curiosity that led me there was that you get much better answers, more thoughtful answers. If you do ask questions like you don't know anything, even if you do know a little bit, because you're always going to learn something. So I think there really are no dumb questions. I believe that. And I I have my staff believe that too, because, you know, you don't want someone to not do their job properly or not be the best they can because they're afraid to ask a question. So I guess I've just never been afraid. That's interesting. I think your background is so, first of all, it's unique. I don't think I've talked to anyone with your background that started a brand. And I think that's really interesting what you're saying, because a lot of us aren't comfortable grilling people and asking questions. And until you start to realize, I mean, for me, I think it was the podcast People really like to give advice and talk about their experiences and you don't have to do too much to get that to happen, actually. Right. Yeah. But I think you wouldn't necessarily know that going into something. And so that's cool that you have that background and that sort of experience that let you know that that was going to be an okay way to go. Yeah. And, you know, if there's any advice to be given there, I think it's, you know, because now I have lots of people ask me for advice. I'm fortunate yeah. to be in that position. And, but it does drive me a little bit crazy when people are just like flat out, can I have 20 minutes and pick your brain? It's like, I want to know what you want to know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, come prepared with specific questions. Yeah. That you really need to learn from this person who has this, you know, this expertise because time is limited. So I always try to be really prepared with what questions I wanted to ask. Yeah, that's great. That's really good advice. I hope that people really hear that because I think that's true. You know, when you're asking someone for their time, which is incredibly valuable, it is good to have a plan and make sure that, and it also gives them a sense that you are not just messing around, right? And yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. So talk about the brand a little bit. So you're not the first plant-based pasta or the first bean-based pasta. So can you talk about differentiation and how you think about chickpea versus some of the competitors that have been around for a longer period of time? Yeah, for sure. So here, where we are here in Canada, there was not a pulse-based pasta that really existed nationwide. There's a few like little artisan type companies that were dabbling in it or mixing pulse-based or like chickpeas with other grains and whatnot to make pasta healthier. So when I started to look into it, there really wasn't much here. And there was a bonza in the US. So I, I did come across them once I started to do some research mm-hmm. and say, oh, okay, there's like an option available. And I think, you know, where we really differentiate from most of our competitors in the market, which we hear from our customers all the time, is we have the most incredibly clean ingredients. Mm-hmm. So it's just chickpeas and lentils. And a lot of our competitors do have additives in their product that I'm sure help to make it more affordable or more palatable. And, but we've worked incredibly hard to find the right balance of our ingredients for it to taste the closest to traditional pasta as possible while maintaining the cleanest ingredients and the highest nutrients. And that's the other thing that we hear from customers all the time is it's the best tasting. It has the smoothest texture, the most mild flavor. And ultimately It's the most important thing because we know that no matter how healthy something is, people are not going to get excited about it. So they're not going to eat it regularly. If it doesn't, you know, absolutely 
make them feel good, taste good. So that's been a huge focus. And that is where we stand out. Sometimes we're, can't think of the right way to put it, but at a little bit of a disadvantage, if people have tried some other types of alternative pasta before ours, and they get kind of put off because of, yeah. you know, tiny yeah. texture, it goes mushy. Yep. And then they're not as open to it. So it's always a bit of a battle to say, well, you know what, come on over, try this. It's, you know, we're not all created equally, but, you know, overall, I just think it's so fantastic that the category itself has grown tremendously since we started and, and that there are many competitors and people are being receptive to this idea of, you know, changing their habit of this food that, you know, never necessarily contributed to your health, but now, you know, you can have it and eat it too. It's amazing because it is one of the most beloved options for meals for families that there ever was. And so being Mm -hmm. able to make it truly healthier, I think is incredible and also tastes good because like you said, no one's making that trade-off for bad taste. No one. No, no, never. (laughs) Yeah. So talk about the size of the brand now, like where are you guys now? And like, what are the next few years look like for you from a, what you want to be perspective? Sure. Yeah. We're now in about 7,000 stores across North America. We originally launched in Canada, like in July of 2016 and the U.S. in February of 2017. I mean, so we've grown quite quickly. And in Canada, we're in most supermarkets, you know, Costco, supermarkets, natural food chains. In the U.S., we're in like most natural food stores, lots of regional supermarkets, and then in a few national chains as well. So we're growing more into that mainstream space in the U.S. and we're in some Costco regions there as well. And I think that's what's exciting is this isn't just for the like hardcore health consumer, but, you know, the general population is, is coming over to the idea of you know, you can have healthy food and really enjoy it. So it's kind of exciting to see it fit really well into more of those mainstream markets too. You feel like the past two years through COVID has had an sort of accelerated the wish to do better from a food perspective of the masses versus just that core, like these are health food nuts. You know, I don't know. I mean, data would show that it has, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if it's COVID that's really driven that as much as there were really limited options through yes. some periods of COVID. And that drove a ton of trial for our pasta, for example, because we produce in Italy. And as you know, COVID hit Italy very early and very hard. So we had to make some really intense decisions early on before anyone even knew that it was going to hit us you know, just, and the rest of the world just as hard. And we really stocked up on inventory. So we had inventory when other brands didn't. Yeah. And, you know, when pasta was empty on the shelves. So, so many people tried our pasta for the very first time just due to limited availability. And now, you know, that grew our base sales tremendously because it opened people's minds to yeah. you know, the idea. Choice. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They discovered something they wouldn't have found before. That's cool. That's awesome. That's a really great outcome of a, you know, a kind of rough start. Oh my gosh. And I am so grateful for it given, you know, what kind of outcome other yes. businesses have experienced through COVID. So eternally yep. and forever grateful. Yeah. So how do you continue to grow and differentiate yourself with all the competitors in the market that are coming, the ones that exist already? Mm-hmm. You know, we continue to focus on having the absolute best product possible you know, we are the highest growth brand in the category in both Canada and the U.S. And I think it's like continuing to focus on, 
you know, great quality, great taste, those clean ingredients were organic as well. So a lot of our competitors are not. And, but we really listened to our customers. I just spent the whole day yesterday on calls with some of our top repeat customers to understand, are we still solving problems for you? And are you experiencing other issues? How can we help? You know, what kind of products are you eating that you just wish were healthier? And those conversations are my favorite. And, you know, they've given us lots of direction in terms of where we're going to go with innovation. So we Mm -hmm. will be entering some new spaces in the coming year, which we're really excited about and hope we'll continue to solve people's challenges with healthy eating. That's cool. So when you say customers, you mean you're talking to the people who are eating and buying the pasta, not the stores, not the retailers. Right. So yesterday, speaking to our end consumers, the ones who are really driving our sales and our advocates for our brand. And then we'll also not just speak to them, but then the other ones, you know, they buy it here and there, but not all the time and try to understand, you know, what would make you a more frequent shopper and what is your hold by, you know, is it price, just understanding customers and their habits more and making sure that we're, you know, we're there for them. And from a distribution perspective, it sounds like you're really growing quickly. What do you guys do to support your distribution once you get it? Cause I think a, a challenge that I've talked about with a lot of brands, especially when they get really super fast growth is all of a sudden they have wide distribution and they can't support it as much as they need to. And so sometimes they wind up losing it. And then that's obviously worse than, than not getting it in the first place. So I'm just curious about how you support the distribution once you get it. Yes. You know what? That's a great question and and certainly something to highlight for newer brands because we've definitely made some mistakes along the way. I think I was really fortunate in particularly the the broker that we had chosen early on to work with in the US who's more of an independent person, but really understood the market and could help me to understand the costs of certain, you know, because it's it is, it's so appetizing to be like, oh, you know, like why not go to the 3,000 stores? I mean, when you really don't understand the costs for one and how much brand recognition you really do need to have in order to have the turns on shelf. So Yes. I think it's about, you know, understanding your market, understanding your, I always recommend any natural food brand to go into natural first, understand how that core consumer, the one who's really going to drive the volume reacts, take their feedback, you know, iterate as you need to, before you go into sort of mass market where you're likely going to turn slightly slower and not have the same core consumer, but you know, you, you'll have that basic understanding to build on. Yeah. I think it's interesting. It's like, it's almost, it reminds me of some of the brands I work with that do sponsorships. Like the sponsorship is not the real cost. The cost is making sure the sponsorships are successful. And it's the same thing with distribution. You get distribution, that's awesome, unless you're over-distributed and you can't support. And so I think that there's some parallels there that are interesting, like getting distribution is great, but it comes with costs, work, all the things that, yeah, yeah. yeah. And getting on shelf is, is the first and probably the easiest step, you know, keeping it on shelf is a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. You need to invest in their programs, you know, the programs that they know work for their store and their customers. You need to have the marketing in those markets to make sure that people are going into the store and looking for you. Yep, yep. Like I always ask this question, and I think that there's so many interesting ways to answer it. But when you think about the things you did and 
I don't know. I don't want to say the mistakes you made because I'm sure that everything was learning. And, you know, if you approach it that way, you sort of have to as an entrepreneur. Oh, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, you're, it would be frustrating. So is there advice you would give to people who are at the early stages and trying to figure out? I mean, you're a Canadian brand that's making a big impact in the US, which is really hard. Is there anything you'd say to founders that are sort of a little behind you? You know, just keep going and believe in yourself to get through obstacles because, challenges in the beginning, they do feel, they feel insurmountable and they all feel like the end. You know, I don't know how many times I felt like this is it. This is the end of the business and we're not going to get through this. Oh yes. You know, it just, when you're in those beginning stages, you don't know yet if it's going to work. So every challenge, you know, one, it can be an expensive challenge when you have left money, but you will get through them. And like you said, you know, I, I feel like, you know, there's, there's continuous challenges. They don't end, but your ability to get through them and lead through them is what improves. I honestly do feel like I'm almost at the point now where you have this major challenge and the instant thought in the back of my head is, what am I going to learn from this? You know, or how am I going to grow from this? Because it is kind of exciting. It's kind of exciting at this point. It's like, Ooh, I haven't had this challenge yet. How can I, you know, like, where am I going to go from here? And I certainly didn't think that way in the beginning, everything felt like, oh my gosh, world is ending. ending. Yes. Yes. It's interesting to have that perspective because I think that's right. You do at the beginning, everything feels like, and then when you get through a bunch of them, you get those to remind you, like I did that. I could probably do this. Yes, exactly. You, You start to know your own capacity, I suppose, and your own resilience much more. Yeah. It feels like resilience is one of the most important things for an entrepreneur. Like it feels like if you don't have that, it's probably not the right place. I would absolutely agree. And, and, you know, you might not feel like you have a lot in the beginning. You might not know, like I said, you might not really understand your own resilience, but if you keep going, you'll start to learn that you are more resilient than, than you think you are. At the beginning, when you felt that way, when you were sort of like, I don't know, maybe this is the end. What did you do to get yourself back into, I can do this. I'm going to keep moving forward. Oh, you know, so I have two small kids and a lot of my family does count on this. You know, my, my mom works for the business. My husband doesn't work for the business, but otherwise is home with our, our children. So, you know, our livelihood, my mom's livelihood, there's a lot that depends on it. A lot of pressure. It is a lot of pressure, but I did actually start to learn that thinking like that made things worse mm-hmm. and it yeah. didn't help me at all to like, right. oh, I have to make this work. I have to make this work. I think what actually helped me the most was letting go of a lot of it and saying, you know, my identity is not attached to this business. If this business does fail, that doesn't mean that I fail as a person. Like I am not my business. I care about it a great deal. I care about the people who work for me, but the actually the more that I've let go of feeling like it's absolutely my number one priority, the more the business has flourished. That's a great piece of advice. I think it's hard to internalize something like that because I think a lot of entrepreneurs' businesses are connected to their identity so deeply. And so I love that because you do feel a lot of pressure as a business owner. You've got a lot of people looking to you and saying, what's going to happen next? Are we okay? Is it going to be good? Mm -hmm. And Sometimes you don't get to answer honestly completely because you have to just push through. And yeah, it's tough. I often think like if I were on my deathbed, which I could be, if I push myself to the brink, like many entrepreneurs do, you know, what would be my regret? And I just know hands down, I'm never going to regret not 
working harder, never going to regret not putting in 14 hour days. I'm going to regret not spending time with my kids. I'm going to regret not caring for my health and taking care of myself and spending time with the people I love. And that's what I'm going to regret. And I think if you constantly think of things from that, you can realize that even though the business is so big in your world, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that significant. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Biggest challenge for you guys right now is what? (sighs) Growth. Growth is, I mean, we're growing. (laughs) Keeping up with growth is a challenge. So this year is a really big year for us of just trying to you know, grow our foundation, or I think stabilize our foundation. We've just hired four senior staff members into roles that we haven't had before. So that's really exciting. It's, uh, you know, more of an experienced leadership team. And we have a wonderful management team in place and bringing in some more experienced leaders, I think is really going to help drive us towards, you know, the goals that we're looking to achieve and help to share you know, the responsibility of the team and the goals with me, which is exciting for me. I'm sure it is. I mean, that's the part. I think the hardest part for an entrepreneur or a business owner is the place before you get to make those hires, like right before when you really Mm -hmm. need them, but you can't make them yet. And (laughs) that's a really hard part. It It is. So it's very exciting to, and I would say that, you know, like the back half of last year is like, Oh my goodness, we could really use some extra people. You know, we got a lot to get started here. So to make these hires is exciting. And and then trying to decide where we're going to go in terms of innovation is really in the forefront now. And and again, it's exciting, but it's time and and work and yeah. (laughs) And money. Can you talk a little bit about that? You've raised a lot of capital already. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I have raised a lot of capital and that's, you know, sort of something that I had to do right from the beginning to make the business work. So the way that our pasta is produced, it's not like something you can make in your own kitchen. We tried. Yeah. We tried at a commercial kitchen. We tried with a restaurant-sized extruder, a slightly larger than restaurant-sized extruder. But with it being such high protein and gluten-free, it's very challenging to make and it requires very specific expertise and very specific equipment. So we have, you know, high manufacturing minimums mm-hmm. and it takes, you know, you have to have so much production to get that product to really run smoothly and come out at the quality that it is. So I raised capital from very early days. Again, like you could sit here and think, oh, I could never do that. I have no experience. Trust, I had no idea. I had to Google everything my lawyer said on the phone, setting up a corporation and what's a share and how many shares should I have? And all these things that, oh my gosh, I had zero, zero idea about. And, but you know, I have many entrepreneur friends who have completely bootstrapped their way through and there's, yeah, there is, there's value to both ways. I would never say to anyone that the path that I've taken is needs to be the path anyone else takes. Yep. Yep. That's interesting. Cause a lot of people are re- very reluctant to do that at the beginning, to mm-hmm. raise capital at the beginning because of the control and all the stuff that, you know, I'm sure. Absolutely. And I think if you can, you know, get to a certain stage without raising capital, if you can, you know, understand your customer and your markets more and get to a stage where you're, you know, you can raise your valuation a little bit more then I would certainly suggest doing that. I mean, investors have a great place and role in business and because of, you know, their part ownership in the company too, that also allows me to have some of that partnership and that relief that it yes. is not all on my shoulders and that it's not yeah. all my responsibility. Yeah. But yeah, if I could have waited a little bit longer, 
I probably would have. So I'd have more understanding of my business before yep. I'm selling yep. it to someone. Yes, definitely. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but anything else you feel like you want to share that would be really useful for people that are listening, that are looking for inspiration? Oh gosh, there's probably a ton of things, but you know, I like to sort of touch back on, you know, what I said earlier about the business not needing to be your whole identity. You know, my husband watches Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He follows stocks a lot. And, you know, just last night there was this guy on there. I can't even remember what company it was from, but he was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm up at 4am and I work straight to like 2am or something. And I work seven days a week because I love this. And I just really despise the type of culture that that creates or the thinking that being an entrepreneur means like giving up your life when really when you're starting a business, I strongly believe it should be to support the life that you want to have. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of pressure once you're inside of that ecosystem to behave a certain way or, but it has to be what you want. And I truly believe it can be, you know, if you really stick to your values. And so that's what I would say. I think a lot of women in particular shy away from entrepreneurship because they think they can't do it and balance a family. And I'm not going to say that that is easy, but it can be what you need it to be. It doesn't have to look the way that everyone else makes it look. I think that's interesting because the culture, which you hinted at, is not that the culture of entrepreneurs and founders. And, you know, I, at Expo West, it was very much like this. There's this sort of always on crazy energy. You can't sleep. You can't breathe. You have to, this is all you're all in or you're not. And I, I think you're right about women. And I'm curious if you have any specific experiences to sort of touch on as a woman entrepreneur that felt different for you as you got into that culture and that sort of like, obsession of so many people that you must be talking to every day? Oh, absolutely. I struggled with it a lot in the beginning. And like I said, I started my family pretty much the same time I started this business. Wild. And I really struggled trying to figure out how can I do this and the way that it's supposed to be done, but also be the mom that I want to be. And I've always wanted to be, I think there was such a feeling like I even had people tell me like, don't have a second kid right now. It's the wrong timing. And I was like, I did not start this to put my family on hold or my other dreams on hold. It's not the only dream that you're allowed to have. And so it's taken me and, and I hit a, in 2019, I hit an extreme burnout that actually landed me in the what? hospital. Oh my gosh. And really? Yes. I ended up, you know, it was, it was through a, a phase of raising capital and And I would say, you know, I've always been fairly good at balancing as much as possible, but the stress that it put on me, it was almost like I was trying to balance it all, but I wasn't really believing it. Yeah. I was just feeling the extreme stress of trying to be everything at home and everything at the business. And it was a real turning point for me. And I was like, I had to really reflect on what am I doing and why am I doing it? So now I like, I have like my why posted in front of me at all times. So I can come back and remember, you know, why did I started this, why it matters and just not lose that perspective again and not end up in that, end up in that place that it's just not worthwhile to be. So I think for women trying to, the pressure to be everything at home and the pressure to be everything at business is too much. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a lot more encouragement. I'm seeing it more and more about 
again, you don't have to work 14 hours a day to do this. And your business doesn't have to look like this person's business or this person's business. And also it's okay to get help at home. You are not a failure. If you don't get your laundry done, have someone else do your laundry Mm -hmm. Spend your free time with your kids. It's okay to have somebody come in and clean your house. It's okay to have someone run your errands because And it's just as acceptable to do that as it is to have an assistant at work. We just take on so much of society's expectations of us. And I think it's really time to unlearn a lot of that. I am all in on that. It's true. It's really hard. It's very Mm -hmm. challenging to do it all and feel like you're being successful at all the things. Did you at that point think about, was there a point in time when that happened that you were like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore? Oh gosh, I've had had many of those moments, you know, like, but the truth of the matter is that there's nothing else I want to do. Mm -hmm. I love this business. And once I understood how it needed to look for me to find joy in it again, then then there's really nothing else. And I I also like, don't think anyone hires entrepreneurs after they built a business. (laughs) But what I have listened to is when I need a break Mm -hmm. when I feel like that or get even close to feeling like that, it's time to take a real break and get clear on whether it is something you really don't want to do or if it's just something you need a vacation from. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And it's hard to know. It's hard to make those calls and sometimes you're too far in it. Do you feel like you made any trade-offs like making that decision and saying, I'm going to do this my way and it's Mm -hmm. going to be the business run the way I can do it. And that works for me. Do you feel like you made any trade-offs? Because it feels like your brand's doing great and it's wildly successful and you're doing it in a different way than a lot of other people are. So was there a trade-off or? I think... You know, we probably could be growing a bit faster than we are even if I was putting all this time in. Maybe. Actually, I'm not I'm not totally sure if I believe that. If there is a trade-off, it's that the company doesn't run as lean potentially mm-hmm. as it could if I was putting all my time into it. You yep. know, we need some extra hires and we've made up for those hires in other places in our budget. Because to me, having the right people in place to do the job where it, it's not then having a job that makes no sense for me to do mm-hmm. all on my shoulders. So I would say that's it is that probably a bigger percentage of our budget goes toward staff at the stage that we're at than some other companies at the stage that we're at. That's interesting and probably well worth it. I mean, I would imagine well worth it. Certainly for me. I'm sure your family thinks it's well worth it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you want to add before we wrap up? This has been incredible. I think there's so much good advice and I love what we got to at the end the most because I think it's stuff that people, you don't even want to talk about it as a woman entrepreneur. You don't even want to say the words, I have a family, I have kids to take care of, I need a break because it's just like you you worry that people are going to say, well, you're not serious. Well, and look how much that that was highlighted through COVID. It was like, Mm -hmm. how many women left the workforce because they couldn't take- anything on anymore. And it was those who left who had employers who would not accept that they had that responsibility, which is just so sad. And so it absolutely has to be something that we talk about. I think so too. I hope that it happens more and more. And I really appreciate you talking about it because you're a great role model. And I think a really good example of, yeah, but you're doing a great, you have a great brand and you're also doing the other things. And I think you made some choices that a lot of entrepreneurs that I've spoken with would never even talk about because even if they've made them, they wouldn't talk about them. And so I think it's really great that you're talking about it. And I think it's inspiring for people to know that maybe it isn't 
14, 16 hours every day for the rest of your life. Maybe there's another path. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. My gosh, this has been incredible and inspiring. Thank I really love it. It's yeah. Been really nice talking with you. Yeah. I think this is going to be a good one. Thank you for listening to the Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.